Look, I don't know if you guys have heard about this article in the New York Times about honeybees vanishing. The honeybee is vital to the environment. Bees, Scotty. Bumblebee! Killer bees. Are you endowing these bees with human motives? Yeah. Bees are funny. You're not interested in what happened to the bees. Do you have any idea what those bees can do? Welcome to Killer Bees, a podcast where we profile B-movie and genre film icons. My name is Garrett Smith. And my name is Tori Potenza. We can be found everywhere on the internet at Killer Bees Podcast. That's Killer BS Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and at gmail.com. We're a part of the Movie John Podcast Network. That can be found at moviejohn.com. That's the Philadelphia John, J-A-W-N. Our artwork is by Alex Schneider. Our music is by Christine Rayburn and her partner, Pat. And today we are talking about Vincent Price. I feel like I was talking to someone recently about who I write for, and I had to be like, it's the Philly John, J-A-W-N, and I keep forgetting that that is a thing I need to specify when I say the name of the publication. <laughs> did you just do an impression of me when you said that? <laughs> well, I feel like I did think of you yeah. when I said it, because you always do the J-A-W-N, and yeah. so then as I was talking to someone, that's just like what I like slipped into. <laughs> you went into radio host <laughs> voice, which I was unfortunately born with. Yep, that's true. Yeah. Hey, it works well for uh, the purpose of being a podcaster. Sure does. Um, awesome. Well, did we just say who we were doing? Did you already say that? Of course I said <laughs> Vincent Price's <laughs> name. You were so concerned about the intro. Uh, yes, we're doing this our first part of Vincent Price because he has acted in so many things and just in general done so many things that even splitting it into it might like still be like two hours each <laughs> depending on how we do this because yeah i mean i hope so not much. but yes you're right um yeah i mean so and we're doing vincent price because this is going to act as the season finale for yes. killer bees for another season we are incredibly busy right now and yeah. so we figure we will take a break come back maybe sometime late winter yeah. uh and we'll, we'll we will make another uh you know stockpile of episodes yes. in the coming months and then come back with another season but we figured it was a good time to yeah. uh we'll do a really big two-parter on one of our absolute favorite b-movie yes. genre icons yep. and uh and then we'll come back in uh, you know just a couple months yeah and you know if you're interested in being a guest you have a favorite person you'd love to talk about please reach out because uh, amber and gary were both like really lovely contributions to the season of the podcast so we'd Absolutely. love to have more people on uh who are passionate about all of these weirdos like we are yes uh and it's also perfect timing because uh, it is exactly a week away from Halloween and Vincent Price is like whenever Halloween comes around like I just want to watch Vincent Price things like yeah. he is the feeling of Halloween to me mm -hmm. uh, so this this should be great yeah um, what have we been watching what have we been watching I feel like a lot of stuff. I've been watching a lot of Ishiro Honda movies, uh, thanks to the Criterion Collections uh, streaming service, the Criterion Channel. Uh, and I've been greatly enjoying getting to catch up on a bunch of kaiju movies that I had never seen. Like I watched War of the Gargantuans this morning, which mm. I did not know uh, stars 
Russ Tamlin, uh, who we like from Twin Peaks. And by the way, I read was a nightmare to work with on this movie, apparently. Oh, that, I mean, he does seem like a fucking weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apparently, he didn't want to do any of the choices that Honda wanted him to do. was just like doing what it, like the opposite of whatever Honda was asking for. Honda should have just fed him to a kaiju. <laughs> yeah. I, I read a quote that was like, one of the producers said that he was, quote, a pain in the ass. <laughs> Don't fuck with Honda. Yeah, uh, but I liked that movie a lot. I've really been enjoying getting to like watch all of these movies, especially because um, Criterion Channel has these you know great Janus restorations of these movies, yeah. and um, they they're killing great. it. Yeah, uh, their collection for the spooky season is impeccable. Um, I just came back from Brooklyn Horror Fest uh, like about a week ago, and I saw a ton of awesome things, but it was also my first uh, in-person festival since like 2018, 2019, and the first one I traveled to. So um, I got to meet like incredible people, filmmakers, writers, academics, uh, just like the gambit of like the awesome horror community that is present. So uh, I saw some really amazing shorts blocks, uh, which you can find my pieces on the shorts and features at moviejohn.com um but I saw the queer horror block that they had which had some like incredible shorts including uh hideous which is by the director of knife and heart and I have not stopped thinking about it since I saw it okay cool um I think it's actually available I want to say it's available streaming somewhere like canopy or something uh but you might have to to see uh for yourself um but then i saw films like husera which i really loved uh i got to see some repertory screenings of things like base moi which is like a controversial french rape revenge i've been dying to see forever saw a really crazy 90s movie called jack be nimble uh when i was at a live uh podcast for uh certified forgotten uh who i got to meet the mats of certified forgotten and they were also great and that's a really fucking wild movie to me to see um yeah that's really cool i was very excited when you were like oh i've been hanging out with matt donato i was like oh i follow that guy on twitter yeah like absolute sweethearts everyone i met was like the fucking best uh but yes it was very cool to watch him uh do a live show with his uh podcast partner uh as well as their guests who uh, i believe her first name is Catherine, and she is the person who runs the future of uh film is female and curated tons of amazing horror for MoMA, which it was really awesome just to hear her talk about that experience of what it's like to like showcase insane movies at MoMA (laughs) where people will actually go and see these insane movies, even though they have no idea what they're getting into. Yeah. It's like just by, just by curating it for MoMA, you just add a lot of legitimacy to whatever you, you put up there. Yeah. Which people will observe it probably differently than they would have otherwise, which is interesting. And also tracking those films down became easier because they were like, hey, if you let us borrow your 35 of this, it'll play at MoMA. And they were like, oh, well, if you're working for MoMA. uh, So I just find that whole aspect of it really interesting. Um, So, yes, that was a very, very amazing experience. I cannot wait to attend next year. and then I think one of the things we should definitely talk about, because we're both really jazzed about it, and we saw it this weekend, is Terrifier 2. Oh, yeah. Of course we should talk about this. We were just talking about it before we turned the mics on. I I feel like I'm beaming every time I talk about Terrifier 2, which is not exactly what I expected. Because af- I liked the first one well enough, but yes. it is... Also, really hard to get through because it is... That is a uh, gnarly yeah, fucking movie. There's a lot of gratuitous violence. Yes. Uh, and it's great, and it's really well done, and art 
in and of itself is like a terrifying uh, designed character. Art the Clown rules and is the yeah. reason that first movie is so good because it's introducing this like incredible character. And then it's got these incredible special effects by the director, Damien Leone. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that movie is like very gritty and, and cheap, um, mm -hmm. which gives it this kind of like dangerous, unsafe feeling that yep. makes you feel really icky when you're watching it. Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, a movie that was only supposed to be in theaters for about a week and they keep bringing it back because it's done so well and it's yeah, we, gone above and beyond its budget at this point. So like, we were both fuck yeah, Terrifier 2. <laughs> we were both kind of like, I don't know, are we going to go see that movie? We'll, we'll, we will see it, but like, are we going to go see it? And then when it was like, oh, it's playing again this weekend? All right, we're going to see it. Let's yeah. go see this movie. And it was packed. It was its third mm -hmm. weekend, and it was a packed theater. That was one of the most legitimately interesting things to me, because one, even though it was packed, and even though a lot of the crowd was obnoxious, it yes. actually didn't bug me, because this is such a wild film to see with people, that yes. it was actually really fun to watch people react to it, because I don't think most of the audience knew what they were getting into, and I doubt a lot of those people even saw the first movie, so they really were just like, oh, there's a weird horror movie that has this sort of like crazy, like people are fainting and puking, and so like, let's Let's go check that out. There was an audience member that was clearly the quote unquote funny person of their group oh, that was trying to do like that thing where they're like a one liner person throughout yeah. the entire movie. But Terrifier 2 is such an actually fucking wild movie that they stopped doing their own commentary on the movie like 30 minutes in. They crept back in every once in a while, but I thought it was awesome that the movie was like so crazy yes. that it was like unheckleable. There was, was like no way to like continue heckling it. I was like, I, that was one of the things I enjoyed so much because one, if you're a person that uh, decides you want to riff like you're on MST3K at a movie theater, you're a fucking asshole. Yes. Uh, but two, the fact that the movie was so fucking crazy that it meant that person literally couldn't say anything was yeah. such a just mwah, experience yeah. in the theater. Yeah, it was it was a delight yeah. and, and a, a really great movie, I thought. Like, I fucking love that movie. I like need to write about it because it just is uh, subverting a lot of horror tropes. Mm -hmm. You know, adding like really awesome protagonists that you can love as much as you like, you know, are terrified of art. So you get this like counterpoint who's this like also incredible screen presence and just looks amazing and mm -hmm. becomes like a superhero. And then you do get just like legitimately amazing soundtrack and practical effects and. Mm -hmm a post-credit scene that opens it up to a potentially bonkers third installment uh -huh. if he gets the opportunity to make it, which I really I hope, hope he does. Because yeah. uh, I, I mentioned this to you where I feel like it's almost already having like a Chucky trajectory yeah. where like they're just like taking this premise and being like, how fucking weird can we get with this? And I am all for that. Yeah, it's just like, it seems like an Art the Clown movie could be literally anything. Yes. You know, it turns out, yeah. and that's really cool. Fucking love it. I think that's really exciting. Um, yeah, I, I this movie was surprising. It was like very engaging. I mean, it's a long movie yes. for a slasher. It is and two and a half hours long. I found it very engaging. I really liked the characters. I thought the performances were all really yeah. interesting. I, I, and it's a more refined movie than the first Terrifier. So this is a little weird to say because it is still a gruesome movie. Yeah. That is wild. Like the gore is wild. Yeah. But it is refined in a way that I thought like took a little bit of the edge off and made it a little yeah. bit uh a little a little better to, to it was a little easier yeah. to take the ride. 
Yeah, I think this and Pearl are like the two horror movies out of this year that I just am like, please go see this movie because they're like fucking awesome and crazy in totally different ways. So like, please just go support some some weird indie horror movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, let's. Should we talk about uh the price? Yeah, let's talk about the price. The price. I hear, I hear it's rising out there, inflation. <laughs> Uh, so I have a quote that I found that I just thought was really interesting. He says, I don't play monsters. I play men besieged by fate and out for revenge. I mean, that literally sounds like something a character of his would say. Yes. It's just so, so perfect. I yeah. adore him. Uh, I'm just going to gush this entire episode, I think. Uh-huh. Um, so he was born uh, May 27th, 1911 in St. Louis, Missouri, which I feel like it's wild that he is from Missouri, and I didn't know that just because he has such an interesting like uh, persona and accent that like I had no idea he's just like like from the Midwest. I, yeah, <laughs> I think I asked you at some point when we knew we were going to do this. I was like, "Do you even know where he's from?" Because whatever he's doing, and it turns out definitely is like a a practice to put upon some you know uh, it's calculated. I assume. Yes, for sure. Um, so Vincent Leonard Price, uh, his father was the president of a national candy company. Uh, his grandfather also named Vincent invented Dr. Price's baking powder. (laughs) Is that like a, is that like a baking powder still used today? I don't know, but it's, it's like a tartar based, uh, baking powder okay uh, i am interested if it is one that is still used but i do just think it's funny that he comes from like baking soda candy money like <laughs> <laughs> that's his big yeah. family background um apparently very well educated um his parents like brought him on tours of europe to go to cultural centers when he was young um so he got to do a lot of this like traveling and experiencing these different places which is such an amazing opportunity um eventually gets his ba in english from yale uh and a degree in art history from a uh, institute in london Um, His career began on the stage, which actually I think makes a ton of sense. Um, In early 1938, uh, he was invited to join Orson Welles' Mercury Theater on a five-play contract. Um, Eventually joins a national touring company in the 50s, does Don Juan in Hell, uh, where he is cast as the devil. (laughs) Okay, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I feel like not the only time he is cast as the devil in things. Um, (laughs) No, definitely not. I added some of like the interesting notes about him because he is literally such an interesting person that we're going to need to talk like interesting stuff beginning and end of this. But um, so on top of all these other things he did, he was also a regularly performing radio network like programmer and he narrated or hosted a variety of programs, anything from history to one on cuisine, which was called cooking price wise, <laughs> uh, and wrote several best-selling books on things like cooking and art collecting. Cause those were two of his like passions outside of acting. I see a very well-rounded man. Yes. You say adore yes. him. Yeah. Um, he lectured for 15 years on art, poetry, and even the history of villainy. Uh, um, can you imagine going to a lecture by him, hearing him just talk about like your favorite subject? I would just cry. Like if like, he <laughs> just talked about any kind of history to you, like in his voice or whatever, uh, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
On top of that, another thing I love uh, is that he uh, did a lot of readings of poetry that he recorded that you can listen to. Um, mm. Did a lot of Edgar Allan Poe as well as Percy Shelley and Walt Whitman. Um, mm. I don't know if he's in one of these, but there's this really great animated Poe anthology in which different actors uh do Poe uh, while there are other directors like doing animation on top of it. I think Guillermo del Toro does one of them. He mm. might do Mask of the Red Death. Um, but I believe Bill Lugosi reads Telltale Heart. Mm. Uh, Price might be in there too, but it's just like for some reason, like listening to these like horror, like men specifically read things like Poe is just like very endearing mm -hmm. to me. Um, well, and we'll get to talk a, li a lot about uh, the way Price got to work into some of these classic literary yeah. uh, adaptations I on also, film as well. I also truly stand by this, that I believe Jeffrey Combs is the 1980s version of uh, Vincent Price. And I think part of that too is because he also did a lot of like stage performances as Poe and readings as Poe. And so I just love this connection of these two what I think are two, like, of the most iconic, like, just horror men uh, there are. Um, so I just, like, love those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, he also struggled uh, with his career due to his height. He is 6'4". Mm -hmm. uh, producers often avoided casting actors who were much taller than their leading actors, which I think is really interesting. Hmm. Um also served on the Arts Council of UCLA, member of the Fine Arts Committee, uh, worked uh, doing like boards uh, for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So just like did all of this other stuff on top of being in 211 films, which is in TV shows, which is crazy to me. Um, and then one of my favorite things is that Price, uh, when he first voted in his first presidential election, voted Republican uh, because his parents were both conservative. And shortly after, uh, political views completely changed and he became one of the most active liberal Democrats in Hollywood. Hey, good for you, Vincent. Way to go, Price. Um, very similar to my mom, actually. She also did, like, the first time just voted Republican because her parents wanted to and then was like, never mind. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think both of my parents did uh, the, definitely took a different path yeah. from their parents. It's always interesting. Yeah. Um, so his... Uh, his on-screen acting begins in the 30s. Uh, so one of his first films was 1938. He was in Service de Lou, uh, manager of a service agency for the wealthy clashes with and falls for an investor who is seeking funding for a new kind of tractor. I think that says <laughs> for an inventor who's trying to make a new kind of tractor. Oh, you're right, inventor. Trying to invent a new tractor. Yeah. 1938. I think they had probably invented most kinds of tractors by 1938. Right? I also just feel like the idea of like kind of this like love uh, romance around an inventor of tractors <laughs> is like very interesting. Tractor inventor is such a funny, <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, in 1939, he was in Tower of London uh, in the 15th century. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, aided by his club-footed executioner, Mord, eliminates those ahead of him in succession to the throne that then occupied by his brother, King Edward IV of England, uh, also included Boris Karloff in oh, whoa, here. Cool. So they worked together uh, pretty early in his career. Yeah, this is like very cool. early in his career. That's cool. And one of his first like horror films. Uh -huh. uh, there is a fair amount of this I like, cut out that are more like like 
some westerns and some like historical period pieces. Okay, so he was working across a lot of he, genres, yeah, in, he did. especially in his early career. Okay, yes. okay. Um, but we're mostly focusing on probably like a lot of the horror stuff. Yeah. Okay. Also did like a lot of playhouse kind of things okay. too. So which kind of makes sense since he was the stage performer that He those totally are, makes sense to me as a theater guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh but then, you know, as his like horror persona kind of increases, we see him then get to this status yeah. where even then he still does a lot of things outside of horror, but I feel like he becomes known as this like horror master yeah Um, i wonder i wonder if it's just a theme among actors generally or if it is somewhat specific to the b-movie thing a lot of the actors we have covered are are stage actors turned film actors yeah i mean i guess it's so early in film too where like as the industry is growing it might just seem like a lucrative kind of pursuit at the time Mm -hmm. as opposed to staying on stage i don't know um 1940s he is in uh the invisible man returns no shit i was i i almost bought uh like a dvd collection of all the invisible man movies while we were out uh over the weekend oh really but there's like a nice blu-ray of it so i figure i'll I'll pick that up at some point i feel like the invisible man will come up a few more times and you'll be very excited about it okay good because yeah i love invisible man movies and i'm excited to find out he's in one uh the premise for this is also very funny the owner of a coal mining operation falsely imprisoned for uh fratricide Uh takes a drug to make him invisible despite Despite its side effect, gradual madness. <laughs> okay. So, okay. All right. Got it. Okay. What a premise. <laughs> um, he is then in a movie called Green Hell, directed by James Whale. No shit. Yep. Um, which is uh, in the jungles of the Amazon, a group of Western adventurers and local uh, native guides try to locate a lost treasure buried beneath an ancient Incan city. Oh, I'm adding this to my watch list right now. Yep. That sounds great. I love James Whale movies. This okay. Let's yeah, do it. and a like non horror James Whale interests me too because I think yeah. I've only seen some of his horror stuff. Um, after that, he is in an adaptation of House of the Seven Gables, uh, which is a uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne story. Which uh, you can go do tours of that house in Salem. I've done them a couple times growing okay. up. Um, 1943, he's in the Song of Bernadette. Mm-hmm. A 14-year-old Bernadette living in a small town in the south of 19 or 1850s France claims to have seen a divine vision prompting excru- extreme skepticism, concerns from her family, and religious and political turmoil. So is it possible this is connected to one Mr. Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta? Oh, maybe. Doesn't that sound maybe very that's like a loose familiar. Even the names seem pretty that's similar. That's what I mean, right? Oh, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if this is the same story because Benedetta is based on a true story. Yeah. That I actually want to look up that information. Take, now, a, take a note. Take <laughs> yeah. a note. Sounds very interesting. Yeah. Um, in 1944, he is in the movie Laura, uh, about oh. a police detective uh, who falls in love with the woman whose murder he investigates. I did not know that's what that's about. Yep. Okay. Which uh, I maybe have seen this. I can't really remember. This uh, th- this is like always available to watch. Uh, and I'm, I'm always like, oh, that seems interesting. But I, I, d- I don't know that I knew this is what it was about. Yeah. 
I just I can picture the poster. I see it all the time. Yeah. Uh, he is then in a film called The Keys of the Kingdom with Gregory Peck, uh, and then in 1946 is in the film Shock, which yeah. we ended up watching because uh, this is a premise that is very close to my heart uh, because of my master's program. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is about a psychologically distraught woman who is committed to a private sanitarium by the man she witnessed commit a murder. Yeah, this movie is fucked up. It's really wild and uh, it's sometimes triggering because it is based in like some real legitimate like psychiatric practices of the time, yeah. including juicing women up with like insulin mm-hmm. until they almost die to like shock them into being like normal again, mm-hmm. uh, which is fucking crazy. Um, and women like could just stay in these places completely against their will because yep. their husbands wanted them to or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so all fucked. <laughs> this movie, it's so crazy because you like you hear the premise and you're like, oh, what a delicious premise. And then you're watching the movie and you're like, oh no, this this is actually this is true horror. Yeah, this it's actually is... really troubling for the most part. Yeah, I spent the whole movie being like, oh, this just keeps getting worse. I feel bad. Yep. I don't like it. Yep. But uh, one of the reasons we watched it is because I feel like this is early enough where Price hasn't like totally become the Price persona. I really wanted to watch yeah. something that was like pre the chiseled in stone defined like Vincent Price marquee horror. Yeah guy you know um that was still in you know is an early kind Mm -hmm. of like b or horror picture that he was in but but is before that and i I, this delivered on that like because even in this he's not as like deliciously evil as he becomes like he actually it does have like a fair amount of empathy and like recognition for the stuff he is doing which is pretty interesting he's got some like uh some leading man charm and that's not to say he doesn't carry that forward in his career but uh he's rarely give an opportunity to be that kind of leading man charismatic thing, you know? Um, And he does that so well here, I think. Uh, also, you know, one of his early "I need to murder my wife" movies. <laughs> yeah, in several of those. Which, yeah, which is a a theme throughout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah uh, I liked this movie. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I did too. It's genuinely horrifying, you know, yes. um, and and difficult to watch actually a lot of the time. Yeah. But he's very good in it, and I thought it was a really interesting movie, yeah. especially like you said. I, I think for like the time it's made to. Um, trying to look at and examine some of these ideas is, yeah. is interesting. Yeah, there's just so much, like, bad male psychiatric takes in it, which are, you know, it's still in the 40s, so it is still of that yeah. time where these practices are still going on, but it right. is also interesting, I guess, some ways seeing, like, how it's problematic at the time, even though maybe they're not, like, totally, like, anti-psychiatric at this point or anything. Right, there's, like, but, a certain amount of critique here, yeah. but... but you know, uh, is not looking far enough into the future yet, probably. Yeah, because it's like, isn't it fucked up to the, it happened to this innocent woman? And it's like, it's fucked up this happened to anyone. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, should yeah. not have been doing this to people. We should not have been shocking them and throwing them in cold water to try to make them normal. That's hilarious. That's an interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> um, after that, he is in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which is actually one of the only Abbott and Costello movies I have seen. Um, and as far as I know, is probably like the best of them. Um, Boris, uh, not Boris, uh, Bela Lugosi uh, comes back for this one. Um, 
Vincent Price voices the Invisible Man. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I've never seen this movie, and it's like one of my big blind spots that I really need to like take care of. It's a lot of fun, and I didn't realize how many of these movies we are. Um, we just went to this like pop-up VHS event yesterday, and yeah. they had a ton of them, and one was called Abbott and Costello Meet uh, the Killer, Boris Karloff, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is a hilarious title. Um, but I think there's also a They Meet the Invisible Man. They meet right. all these different characters. Uh, but this is like a genuine really fun movie especially if you just like love the universal monsters yeah everybody um, touts this one as not just one of the best like comedies of its era yeah. but actually one of the best universal monster movies yep. just generally it also is a little sad because i'm pretty sure bella comes back to dracula after years of being like i'm never gonna do this mm. like because he needed money for yeah. his like drug addiction mm -hmm. which is like really depressing and mm -hmm. sad but um it is like also, I think, for fans, a big moment for him to like come back to this very iconic role that he is so well known for. Yeah. Um, in nineteen forty-eight, he is in the Three Musketeers. Uh, he plays, I think, it's Cardinal Richelieu. Um, this has Gene Kelly as well as Angela Lansbury, Whoa. who just died like a week or so ago. Whoa. Um, R.I.P. Uh, but really, really great cast. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think I've seen these like really old Three Musketeer movies. I, I haven't. Think. Yeah. Um, and then in 1949, he is in an adaptation of The Christmas Carol oh. in which he is the narrator because already everyone realizes that Vincent Price should narrate everything that happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then we get to his career in the 50s. So uh, for TV, some of these are really funny. He did the TV Reader's Digest, okay. uh, Science Fiction Theater, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and oh. General Electric Theater. Because all of those just like company-sponsored like yeah. theater performances on TV were so popular of the time, which I always find very That's so funny to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Let's sit down and watch General Electric Theater. I know. <laughs> trying to think if there's any kind of equivalent of that now and i just realized like a lot of companies do have their own fucking podcasts now which i guess oh is that's the true equivalent of that yep i yeah it doesn't like the mail service have their own one yeah, something which i like find that. very funny yeah. um in 1951 he is in the adventures of captain fabian a sea captain becomes involved with a servant girl in early new orleans she sees him as a way to gain access into a wealthy household Ooh, interesting um, and then he is in His Kind of Woman, uh, which is a uh, deported gangster's plan to reenter the U.S. involving um, skullduggery <laughs> at a Mexican resort. And a gambler, Dan Milner, is caught in the middle. Uh, and this has Robert Mitchum in it as well. Whoa. They're in a movie together? Yowza, which, yeah. baby. You got to put that on the watch list. We do love some Mitchum. Um, 1953, he is in House of Wax, which uh, this is one of two like classic prices we have not seen, but we have seen later adaptations of. Uh, yeah, uh, we so I think that, yeah, uh, last year, year yeah. yeah, we watched uh, which I've seen a few times, but it was your first time because I think I found like a DVD of it for three bucks, and I was like, gotta own this. Paris dies, gotta do it. It was entertaining. Yeah, I get why that it's that's fun. got like a cult movie status. Yeah. Um. With House of Wax, uh, this like really became like one of the films that uh, fine tuned the character that Price really ends up becoming <laughs> and playing, uh, which I, I think is an interesting turning point in his career. Um, 
Yeah, this is like kind of what I was referring to when I was yeah. like the the persona, you yes. know. Yeah. Which I would I really do want to see this movie. It's on our list. Um mm-hmm. and I think it's available somewhere. Um there was also a very funny little note from this uh that I just love. So Vincent Price liked to attend screenings of this film Incognito. Mm-hmm. Uh as the thespian once told biographer Joel Eisner, he regularly uh would go out and see House of Wax during its run. Uh, um, happily for Price, the requisite uh, 3D glasses could usually conceal his identity in the back and dimly lit theater. But one night, he decided to make his presence known at a showing in New York. Uh, Price quickly took a seat behind two teenagers right after a particularly frightening scene. Uh, he leaned forward and asked, did you like it? In Price's words, they went right into orbit. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, imagine just, like, reacting to a scare and then yeah. Vincent Price is right behind you. That's great i would actually die yeah um 1954 he is in dangerous mission with piper laurie oh um who like looked gorgeous i don't think i've seen her like very young uh, oh yeah and she looked amazing mm-hmm. um then he is in a movie called the mad magician uh an illusionist <laughs> becomes homicidal when his best kept magic secrets are stolen by his rival. Okay, also putting that on the watch list. Uh, So it's essentially like The Prestige, if The Prestige was a horror movie, which I'm all about. Yeah, it sounds great. Sounds like a movie I wrote when I was dreaming one night. Oh, for sure. Um, 1955, he's in Son of Sinbad, uh, which I forgot that the Sinbad movies were a thing around this time. Oh my god, yeah. Um, He's in one of them. Okay. And then in 56, he was in a Fritz Lang film called While the City Sleeps. Oh. Yes. That's interesting. I had not heard of before. Um, 57, he is in a movie called The Story of Mankind, uh, in which (laughs) he plays Mr. Scratch, the devil. (laughs) Uh And it's like one of those, like the devil and the spirit of man are arguing whether humanity is good or evil. And I feel like that is like a weird thing that I has happened in a lot of different movies. Mm. I don't know why. Um, and then in 1958, he is in The Fly, uh, the other iconic Price film that we have only seen the Cronenberg version of. I don't know which of the two flies from this era I've seen, but I've seen like some pretty significant chunks of one of them, okay. like on TV in the background somewhere. I got you. And it's, you know, it's pretty funny. It's literally like a guy with a like Halloween fly mask mm-hmm. on. Yep. Um, and so it's like, it's so funny that like, I saw the Cronenberg one, uh, you know, long before I ever saw scenes from the 1950s one. And the Cronenberg one is such a detailed, you know, transformation to this horrible fly creature. It's so funny that the 50s one is like a dude in a business suit with just like (laughs) a fly rubber mask on. Anytime I see the image of it, it makes me laugh so much. Just because like when I was younger and like. I remember watching like I love the eighties and stuff and the fly, whenever they talked about it, scared the shit out of me because yeah. those practical effects are so disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And so then you see the original and you're <laughs> like, and it makes sense too, where it, it like could be this really cheap, uh, like, you know, sci-fi film that was yeah. very popular at the fifties, but then it also translates so well into a very like Cronenbergy, like philosophical body horror piece. So mm-hmm. it is interesting how it works so well for these different time periods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he is in one of my all-time favorites in 1959. He is in 
House on Haunted Hill. Uh, you introduced me to this movie a couple of years ago, yeah. and I think about it every Halloween. Like, I always want to watch this movie. It was like one of those years where, because now I take Halloween off because I'm a smart adult, and it's crazy that <laughs> this isn't a holiday that we don't get off. But uh, it was one of those years where I had to work on Halloween, and so then I had to like cram all my Halloween stuff into one night. And so I was like making my pumpkin squares and like carving pumpkins. And then I was like, we have to watch House on Haunted Hill because mm-hmm. it's the perfect Halloween movie. And it is. And it really is. He is like deliciously evil. And then I forget her name, but the woman that plays his wife is like also the perfect counterpart to him being oh, deliciously yeah. evil. Like they are such a perfect toxic couple They're and I am in, in love with them. Um, she's also like gorgeous. Uh, so they they have like that great chemistry that two people who like absolutely want to fucking murder each other have, which I love. <laughs> I mean, that's what's so great about this movie was like, I had no idea that that's like actually what it's about. This like couple that just wants to fucking kill each other. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, they... like brings these other people like into the, this like sick game that they're playing yeah. with each other. Like um, there's all this sexual tension and he's just being like, Oh, sometimes I think about just putting my hands around your throat and squeezing tight. And then you're just like, Ooh, damn. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like it, it, it walks this line of being kinky, which is yes. really interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's a uh, Carol Omhart is the, uh, the gotcha. actress's name. Yeah. She's, great uh and it is just such a fun weird movie and there's even some scares in this that i think like are legitimately scary like oh yeah and enjoyable uh yeah they're all like they're they're that william castle like fun scare the thing where you like yelp and then kind of giggle yep which like uh, yeah i mean that's another thing i could talk about castle stuff all day and uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit more when we talk about his next film but um apparently they met because price uh had learned that he was passed over for a part in a castle movie and so over coffee uh castle describes the premise of this particular picture price liked the idea which led to a two picture collaboration this and then the tingler which we'll talk about in a little bit oh yeah Um, cool cool Cool. Well, that's cool. That's very interesting that he basically met him on the premise of like, hey, yes. I heard you fucking didn't take me for any of your yeah. movies. Also, if you love all of this like old Hollywood kind of like horror history stuff, um, I definitely suggest reading The Monster Show. It's really great. It talks a lot about like, you know, the castle gimmicky stuff, but it also goes in depth about like why werewolf movies were popular at this mm. time and why eventually like kaiju movies become popular. Mm. So it does this really good job of like embedding like the social circumstances mm-hmm. into like the horror that's occurring. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it's fantastic. Um, after that, he is in return of the fly. So he comes back, which I didn't realize there. Cause there's also an eighties fly, uh, sequel that I think has a similar premise about like the son of the fly. I, I mean, I believe, yeah. Cause, uh, if you remember Cronenberg's movie ends with an implication of a potential fly baby. Yeah. Cause she's pregnant. Yeah. Or, which is maybe a dream in Cronenberg's movie that then the sequel just goes like, actually it was real. Yeah. It's very strange, yeah. but I didn't, it's funny that like the sequels to both right. of these have the same premise too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's about his son now, uh, adult son of the fly who does the same transportation experiment. And you're of like, course. dude, <laughs> um, I must continue my father's work. Um, yeah, apparently this was one that Price signed on for cause he really liked the first draft of the script and then, uh, rewrites, uh, happened and that reduced production costs. And then he was like, not a fan of what they came up with at all, which, uh, uh very interesting. Um, 
but then after that, he is in The Tingler, which we also just watched recently. Yeah. As, uh, I had to cross it off my list. Um, and this is like one of the this is like one of the castle movies that really kind of started the like um oh we're going to add like things that shock you and like blow hot air at you and like weird stuff to like yeah, enhance the horror experience. Yeah, the, like fourth dimensional elements yes. of a movie. Which yeah. I would love to see that come back because I feel like that's a thing they do now at like uh, amusement parks. Like I went to like a Disney screening of something and it was like a Shrek thing and they did similar stuff where like oh you can feel like water like droplets on you when it's raining. I don't know if we have one out here we might actually i should look hang our pressure might have one at this point there is a thing now called 4dx uh. and it's like you can go see like a fast and furious movie and the seat like rumbles when it's like <laughs> oh, a driving bad. scene and i think they do do things like spray a little mist in your face when there's like some water I mean, like that's definitely how i want to watch a fast and furious movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i i mean it seems insane to me that seems yeah. crazy but also but i guess vaguely interesting it's also one of my favorite parts about the movie popcorn because mm -hmm. uh, that movie's all about like doing this like big horror marathon yeah. and stuff but then also bringing in a lot of the chintzy effects oh, that were so uh, popular at that time um yeah. One thing I think is really interesting is that this was an early mainstream film that depicts an LSD trip, uh, oh. which I did forget how prevalent like people taking LSD was, which yeah. is like so funny to watch like the Hollywood version of yeah. doing LSD. Um, uh, Castle toyed with other ideas to frighten audience members in addition to Percepto among them, uh, rolling bean bags to brush against the legs of the audience members. <laughs> uh, speakers mounted at different areas that would give a screech when the tingler appeared and possibly even using shills to operate some type of mechanical device to tickle the legs of the audience members. Uh, but the only viable way of doing it was by attaching buzzers in select seats to coincide with the appearance of the tingler. Uh, Castle confessed in a biography that he buzzed at least 20 million of behinds <laughs> with the electric <laughs> seats. Um, it would be so fun to see that this way. This is also an yeah. interesting movie that has, there's like, a specific scene that I think we saw where there is color. There is like a bathtub that right. they make look like it is filled with blood. Right. Uh, Cause the tingler is like, they're like trying to make this woman kind of go mad. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. so there is this moment where you just have color in the bathtub and that's, really crazy to see just a totally black and white movie otherwise yeah it's cool it's really effective i i can't remember but i assume they they may have just colored right onto the frame which was like an old technique for that um, yeah although i don't know maybe at this point there there was a way to do like um the multiple cut like the the multicolor effects like that yeah and this is like you know another price being like a very kind of typical like mad scientist who also wants to murder his wife who I think is like cheating on him in this movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's I know it's so funny that that is like a recurring theme in these movies that he just like wants to kill the women that he that he loves all the time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he's then in the Bat, a crazed killer known as the Bat is on the loose in a mansion full of people. Okay, again, I did not know that was the premise of the Bat. That yeah. makes me pretty interested in The Bat. This is one I would very much like to see. Yeah. 
Um, and then we get to his roles in the 60s. So for TV, he was on Batman. He played Egg ma- Egghead. <laughs> have you seen pictures of this, by the way? No. Oh, you absolutely <laughs> have to look up pictures of him as Egghead. Oh, no. He, he looks like a conehead. Oh, God. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, you need to look it up. That sounds insane. Yeah. Um, he was also in The Man from Uncle, The Chevy Mystery Show. So we got uh-huh. another uh, sponsored show there, as well as Get Smart. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so in 1960, he is in the House of Usher, uh, which I believe this is the first of the Corman Poe stories and the first with Price as well, uh, because that becomes a really big part of Price's career in the 60s is these, uh, Corman Poe adaptations. Um, so we watched House of Usher, uh, I forget if there was a specific reason, but we watched it because, yeah. I mean, I love Poe adaptations and we will talk about a Corman uh, adaptation that I like love. Yeah, I mean, this becomes a huge theme that we'll end yes. up getting to talk about, which is really cool because we've talked about Corman on the show a bunch already. Yeah. And, you know. Um, we really like, I think, a lot of what we've seen of his stuff. Yeah. Some of it gets like a little dry and boring. Yeah. I think this is one of them. This yeah. is also a wild one where Price bleaches his hair and gets <laughs> rid of his mustache. So he looks like fucking wild in it. Yeah. He looks like way different than like your sort of like collective yes. memory of him, you know? Uh, and I mean, it's also funny, too, because all of these post stories are short stories. And right. Corman just like decides to be like, OK, I'm going to take this name and I'm going to make it a totally different fucking thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like he takes like the kernel of an idea and expands it out. Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm with you. This one was not like my favorite of these adaptations. Yeah, um, but they're all like really colorful. I, you know, which is they're they're kind of like interesting looking movies. Yeah, because you see, I mean, seeing Price in color. Yeah, like, yeah. At this point, uh, yeah. which is kind of just interesting. Here, you want to see general. Price in color? Look at this fucking egghead. Oh, uh, okay. I have seen that picture before. You're yeah. right. He looks wild. Yeah, absolutely insane. Oh, that's looking. so funny. Um, but yeah, I agree. This wasn't like my favorite. There are a lot of interesting ideas and I just genuinely enjoy the colors of, as well as like the set pieces in Corman films. Um, just cause I love how a lot of that like period garb and like those mansions and castles typically look in this lots of like musty dungeons, which I'm a big fan of too. (laughs) Um, and this has tons of that. And then price too is like, um, He's like kind of this like sad, dejected character. He's kind of like he this is the one where like he feels like his family has like cursed blood, essentially. Right. And so he like can't can't fight fate. He can't fight this like tragedy that he knows will befall him and his sister. Yes, yes. Right. Um, which is always like I it also interesting just seeing him play this kind of different character. Well, and that uh to pop right back up to that quote that you opened on, I don't play monsters, I play men besieged by fate and out for revenge. Yeah. Right? I exactly. mean that's like pretty much exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, after that, in 1961, he is in Master of the World. Uh, in 1868, an American scientist and his team become hostages of a fanatical pacifist uh, who uses his airship to destroy military targets on Earth. Okay. Uh, starring alongside Charles Bronson. Okay, what? What a weird combination of men to be in a movie. You keep dropping these fucking hot combos of dudes on me, and I'm like, oh my God, why are we not watching these movies? Well, see, that's the thing that's fascinating to me. Me too is he really works with like an insane amount of people throughout his career because he he acts until the 90s like right up to his death it's 
so he gets to do a ton of different types of movies, but also just work with a lot of different filmmakers and actors. And I find that very fascinating. The picture for Master of the World. He's straight up dressed as a sky captain. Yep. There you go. Hell yeah. Uh, and then he is in The Pit and the Pendulum, another Corman film, which we talked about in our Barbara Steele episode. Yes. Um, I feel like you were a little more a fan of this movie than I was, but uh, there is some like pretty great stuff in this movie. Yes. Well, uh, this is one of my, even though it has nothing to do with it, this is one of my favorite Poe stories, uh, just because the premise is so interesting. Um, but that being said, you really don't get Pit and or Pendulum until like the last five minutes of the movie. Which like both adaptations of this we've seen did that, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's also interesting because like uh, it's like prices. I think five is essentially this man that had like a big torture chamber like in within their house and then I th- I think the premise is that like he eventually like takes on the kind of persona of his father and mm. kind of like uh, begins to fall into these like murderous scary habits but like you know you also just get a big fucking torture dungeon which is <laughs> so fun to yep. me and the part when you do get to the space where the pit and the pendulum are like is like legitimately interesting and cool looking it looks really cool um yeah but yeah i mean like we we also for the podcast watched the gorman adaptation from the 80s of this which um i actually think i like a, a fair bit more than yeah, this one I do too. but it is just again like that's a Combs one. It's just yep, all of yep. these connections of these like eighties versus like fifties and sixties adaptations of yeah. post stuff that I like. Um, after that, he is in Rage of the Buccaneers. <laughs> uh, it just says Gordon, the Black Pirate, battles the slavery tree. Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> that last part, like you're like, oh fuck, this is a very different movie than I expected. Yeah. Uh, he is then in Famous Ghost Stories. Vincent Price hosts and plays a poltergeist while introducing the ghost story to follow, which turns out to be an edited version of Gordon's Tormented. Okay. Uh, kind of interesting. Uh, after that, in 1962, which I put this in mostly because of the name, he is in Confessions of an Opium Eater. Uh, in, 19, in 19th century San Francisco Chinatown, American adventurer saves slave girls owned by the Chinese Tong factions. Oh, my God. What a crazy title. Confessions Which, like, of an Opium Eater. There is no way this movie isn't problematic. Yeah, yeah. But I am also fascinated by what this movie is. Yeah. Uh, also just seems like a very odd price choice. For sure. Uh, since I think he is the... Uh, Opium eater. Uh, oh, uh, of, okay. Of <laughs> He's confessing to eating the opium. Also, just like, isn't that a thing you like smoke or inhale? Like, yeah, why I mean, I don't get that title at opium? all. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, maybe there's probably a lot of things I don't know about opium, but. Probably. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he's then in Tales of Terror, directed by Roger Corman, alongside Peter Lorre, Ooh. another household fave. Mm-hmm. Uh, three tales of terror involving a grieving widower and the daughter he abandoned, a drunkard and his wife's black cat, and a hypnosis who prolongs the moment of a man's death. All right, so we're just, we got a we're like almost like back to back here. We got a couple of. Uh couple of uh, anthology movies i know i do i do love a good anthology yeah 
Um, he's then in Convicts 4. Don't know if that means it is the fourth of a Convicts <laughs> series or what. Um, after his death sentence is commuted uh, to life in prison, uh, a man is transferred from Sing Sing to Danamora Prison uh, with the help of a humane prison guard. <laughs> he becomes a rehabilitated man and a successful painter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he is then in Tower of London, which I think that is his second Tower of London. I was going to say, movie. that was one of the first movies he was in in the 40s. Yes, Tower that is his London. second Tower of London movie. Wild. Yeah. Uh, this one directed by Roger Corman. You don't I, say. Uh, again. Oh, no, this one doesn't have Peter Lorre. Um, the twisted Richard VIII is haunted by the ghost of those he murdered in his attempt to become King of England. Okay. Um, he is then in The Raven uh, in 1963, again directed by Roger Corman with he's Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff. Oh, cool. What I mean, a combination. He's on a run here with Corman. Yeah. And it's not over yet. And this is one I would really love to see. Yeah. Uh, which the premise a magician who has been turned into a raven turns to a former sorcerer for help. <laughs> <laughs> not what I thought the movie adaptation of The Raven would be about that has nothing to do no, with the No, that's poem. insane. Um, he is then in Diary of a Madman. An evil spirit leaves the body of his human host, a criminal on death row, and sneaks into the body of his next human host, a French magistrate. Interesting. I feel like I see the poster for this one all the time. Yes, I agree. Um, he is then in a movie called Beach Party, which Hell is yeah. exactly what you would think. But I put it in here because it is directed by William Asher, who directed... I don't know. No? Uh, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. No shit. And was also the man behind, like, I Love Lucy and, like, a lot of other, Whoa. like, comedy stuff before doing Butcher Baker, is Nightmare Vincent Maker. Is Vincent Price just hanging out on a beach with teenagers in this movie? I think so. That sounds great. Yep. <laughs> Um, he's then in The Haunted Palace, directed by, guess who? Roger uh, Corman. Charles Dexter Ward arrives at a small village to visit the home of his inherited from his ancestors who died there a hundred years ago. Interesting. That's huh. like the premise of a bunch of horror movies. Like there's a, um, there's like basically a Dracula movie that is not called Dracula by name that mm. uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis made that is... That premise is just like a guy gets left a house yeah. that by his ancestors. Well, what's interesting here is that both Poe and Lovecraft are uh, credited oh. as being part of the stories. So hmm. I don't know if that means that like like one of them did a version of this or if like this is a just Poe Lovecraft like weird mush of story, yeah. which is also kind of interesting. Right. Um he is then in Twice Told Tales, another anthology featuring three horror stories uh, based on the writings of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Oh, cool. Um, then he is in A Comedy of Terrors, which is a Richard Matheson screenplay. Mm -hmm. um, dishonest Undertaker Waldo Trummel and his sidekicks Felix are creating their own customers when they cannot find willing ones. Okay. Uh, another film with Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre. Gotta oh, see those. Um, in 64, he is in The Last Man on Earth, another film that I have not had the pleasure of seeing. But I, I really want to see his, this. Yeah, one of his 
famous ones. Uh, another uh, Matheson screenplay as well. Yeah, I mean, this is like if people are familiar with the movie I Am Legend that yes. Will Smith starred in. This is like one of the original versions of that. Yeah, which is always so interesting that there are so many of these mm -hmm. uh, films that have now been adapted multiple times too. Yeah. Um, and then he is in Mask of the Red Death. Okay, now this was my Roger Corman shit. Yes, I fucking love this movie. I love this story too, um, but I think Price is just so great and like, again, like deliciously evil in this movie. Um, yep. And yeah. it is kind of a movie just about like, a bunch of fucked up rich people getting their comeuppance as they are like ignoring a literal plague that is killing tons of like poor, like peasant people outside of their homes. If I remember correctly, we watched this as uh, COVID-19 was ramping up and yeah. becoming, uh, you know, as, as we were starting to understand truly what a, a terrible pandemic yeah. we were beginning to live through we watched this movie and we were like okay this is somehow satisfying uh, just like a lot of weird connections yeah. that were um, you know and just like you know eat the rich it's like yep. all perfectly yep. uh yeah yeah and he plays like just a sassy rich asshole in this movie yeah. that is like really fun to kind of like That's watch also things happen too into like kinky fucked up like kind of snm shit yeah. it's like all of that works so well yeah this movie has also just like gorgeous colors yeah. it's like a really great looking movie and it's got those great sequences in the towers towards the end where they got yes. those great color schemes it and stuff it looks so good yeah it's um, awesome yeah the set design in this is just insane and i think this is like one of the first corman uh price ones we watched so i think maybe that kind of also ruined us for some of the others yeah, yeah. um i also think it's one of the closer adaptations to the story i was gonna say this feels much more like the story that i remember reading yeah. than some of the other ones we watched i want to say like the price occult stuff is like added in mm -hmm. but a lot of the other stuff feels like it was is part of the original text even though it's been years since i've read it mm -hmm. um after oh and uh there was a note here i just found that um this was one of his like personal favorite films that he did along with uh, the, corman you mean yes uh along with the intruder and x the man with x-ray eyes that's awesome because i also love x the man with the x-ray eyes. i haven't I got, seen that yet i gotta like show to. that to you sometime it's yeah. really fun uh, he is then in the tomb of, uh, Legia. Yeah, uh, I don't know how you pronounce that. Uh, another Corman film. You're um, kidding. <laughs> a man's obsession with his dead wife drives a wedge between him and his new bride. You're kidding. Uh, the Vincent Price plays a guy who wants to kill the lady yeah. he loves because he already like, killed the lady he loves. Almost the premise to Rebecca. Uh, oh, true. Which yeah. is also mm -hmm. funny. Uh, in 1965, he is in City in the Sea. Uh, in 1903, in Cornwall, a group of locals discover an underwater city dating oh. back to the 1800s that hides a society of smugglers and an aquatic creature. That sounds cool. Sounds great. Uh, okay, so <laughs> he's in three, I think three of these movies that I need to talk about. Yeah, we gotta find these. Okay, so... He is in this movie called Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. <laughs> uh, Skirt-chasing SIC agent Craig Gamble and the millionaire bachelor Todd Arm Armstrong set out to foil mad scientist Dr. Goldfoot's plot to use his army of bikini-clad robots to seduce wealthy men into signing over their assets. 
Yeah, sounds awesome. And I don't. It's I, like this sounds like it is a James Bond right. spoof before Austin Powers right. becomes the James Bond spoof. Right. It is so strange. And I, I does he play Doctor Goldfoot? He is Doctor Goldfoot. Yeah, of course he is. Yes. Um. Then the same year, he is in the Wild Weird World of Doctor Goldfoot. Okay. And then in 1966. Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. Who made these what movies? What the fuck? <laughs> was there just like, because this is like the stuff that like those Japanese studios would do where they would just fund like a five movie series that they would just make back to back to back in two years. Well, this is also, I assume, a, a still prime like James Bond territory. So for this spoof right. to come out while that's still popular just seems so fucking weird to me. My um, goodness. Do you know who's listed as one of the directors of this movie? Who? Ishiro Honda. No. Yep. Norman Tarog and Ishiro Honda. Now that's, but then in parentheses it says earlier film clips. So I don't know what that means. Oh, I wonder if there are like just pieces of his movies with yeah. it. Strange. Unclear. Weird fucking shit. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, got to research that more. But then after that, he is in a movie called House of a Thousand Dolls, hmm. uh, which the tagline is every day in every city, in every country, newspapers publish desperate ads like this. Here is the shocking story of how and why each year thousands of young girls disappear forever. <laughs> What a crazy tagline. That was so much. That was a really long runway to. Uh, right. Yeah. I was like, oh, so this is about how like women disappear. Like, Jesus, I think we know why things like that yeah. happen. But sure. Please tell us. Um, he is then in a Western called The Jackals, which I had not heard of. Hmm. But I assumed you'd be stoked he, yeah. about his Westerns. Yeah. Especially like at this point in his career, because it's like kind of we're getting to like the midpoint. I'd, I'd be interested to see what he's doing in a Western there. Yeah. Um, in 68, he is in a movie called The Witchfinder General, which I am dying to see. It's one of the main focuses of Kirla Janice's right. folk horror documentary. Um, and he is playing like a witch hunter um, <laughs> and then is a witch hunter that is terrorizing his fiance and kills her uncle. So I, I also th find that interesting because it is clearly like witch hunters are like bad dudes. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. that also is like an interesting kind of twist on, on the witch hunter. Um, Spirits of the Dead uh, is his next film, a trio of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, uh, which feel like I would love to see that just because I love his Poe stuff. Yeah. Um, he's in an Elvis movie from oh. 1969 called The Trouble with Girls, which I did not know if that was a thing. Uh, I find very interesting. And then his last credit in the 60s is a movie called The Oblong Box. An aristocrat keeps his disfigured brother locked in a tower. Uh, the brother occasionally escapes and causes havoc around the town. <laughs> That's a little bit like um, that weird subplot in... Um uh, oh boy, what's that James Whale movie I like so much where they show up at that house and the crazy oh, family is uh, there? I can't think the, about. Old the old dark house. Dark house. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. I was like, the old house on the road. Yeah, like, that that's was why like, I couldn't think it? of it. Yeah. <laughs> There's that subplot where they've got that family member that's like locked away. That oh, they, that's true. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. That's a great movie. I love that movie. But uh, but yeah, that gets us to the end of his career in the 60s. So we'll pick up uh, in the 70s and then talk about the rest of his career and some of the other just like insane bits of trivia because 
he is just an endlessly fascinating human being. Yeah. Does this mark the end? Like, I mean, the beginning of the end of our third season? Is that what we're doing right now? Our mm-hmm. third season? Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Yep. So, yeah, we'll, we'll be back for our season three finale to talk more about Vincent Price, which I'm very excited yes. about. There's still so many good, exciting, weird movies to, uh, to come, which mm-hmm. is really cool. There's some 70s Price that oh. I, like, genuinely think is some of my favorite Price. So oh, I there's one movie in particular I just cannot wait to talk about. I'm very excited to see. And then I'm also just excited to talk a little little bit about his 80s 90s stuff because it's like at the point where he has become such a legend that like now in his old age we are seeing him like in horror because like people grew up watching his movies and they love him and like also because his voice is so good he's in a ton of kids stuff so he's like also a huge part of like my childhood and Mm -hmm. so it's just a very interesting part of his career to to delve more into yeah i'm excited about it Cool. Well, uh, what do you want to plug? What do you want to tell people about? Yeah, so um, check out my coverage of Brooklyn Horror at Movie John. I also just wrote a piece on Denise Cronenberg and her amazing costume design that just lended so much to Cronenberg's movies. I read um, that piece, by the way. It was very good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, Hear a Scream Volume 2 should be out by the time this oh, is. Yeah, hey, uh, very exciting. I think the published date is technically today, but apparently Amazon is taking a really long time to upload the listing so it is not officially up yet well, i don't want to toot your horn but i believe i saw someone maybe do an early review of the book and i believe they referenced uh, your article among a few others as I, a highlight i also saw that today which made me very happy yeah. so i hope people like it um i'm also in uh hero zine the october version of the hero scream zine uh in which i give lazy horror fans like myself tips on how to plan your halloween costumes so uh yeah, lots of cool, uh, lots of cool things that I've been working on. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, well, you know, you can just find me on the internet at Philadelphia. That's with an F. Mm-hmm. Uh, follow me on Letterboxd. Yeah. And uh, follow our show everywhere at uh, Killer Bees Podcast. That's Killer BS Podcast. And uh, you know, send us an email, make some recommendations. Yeah. Please tell us about how much you love Vincent Price. Yeah. Yeah. Should we get out of here? Let's do it. Buzz, buzz. buzz.